Hey there, welcome to Anthropod. I'm Laura Murray. On this episode, I discuss what Harriet Ritvo and others have called the animal turn in anthropology. I explore questions about human-animal relations, animals in society, and other issues that have more recently come under the rubric of multi-species ethnography. To do so, I caught up with Nikhil Anand, Philippe Descola, Radhika Govindrajan, Laura Ogden, and Paige West. I wanted to know the why, how, when, and where of their differing approaches to animals. That is, I wanted their thoughts on the role of animals in a discipline that is by definition the study of humans. On one hand, there is in fact a long history of animals in anthropology. As Radhika Govindrajan pointed out, one need look no further than Lewis Henry Morgan and his beavers. So what makes the present moment a turn? There are of course many ways to answer this, but our conversation focused on three key considerations. First, there's the intersection of anthropological approaches to animals with broader disciplinary changes. Second, there are the emerging ethical and political possibilities of ethnography. And third, there's the imperative to decolonize anthropology. So when it came to the first subject on anthropology and its intersections, everyone had a lot to say. To start with, for Nikhil Anand, this was about the lessons of post-structuralism that can be carried forward in an era of intense environmental change. Here he is on the subject. As we find ourselves um, again, um, and again, and again, in, in, in urgent environmental situations, the humanist framing with which we've theorized society and culture and politics feel somewhat incomplete or missing some things or some beings or some, um, yeah, some things or beings uh, mm. that are important to account for mm. without focusing on how they are brought into human spheres, modes of reasoning and, and thinking through discursive practices, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think that's kind of what brings these different terms to us now. But there's also something interesting that's happening in anthropology after and with post-structuralist thinking, um, which enables us to ask many of the questions that have been asked through the work of cultural materialists or anthropologists of the mid-20th century. But how might we ask those same questions having learned the lessons of post-structuralism, right? And so it's a generative time to return to those questions with um, the theories we've been working with since anthropology as cultural critique came into its own over the last two decades. So, for Nikhil Anand, it is about the way in which thinking beyond familiar dichotomies might afford anthropologists new insights about a world in ecological crisis. Laura Ogden shared this view. Here she is. I would say in, in anthropology traditionally, um, and, and one of the critiques of anthropology traditionally, has been that Anthropology has often um, understood the human as a kind of given, <laughs> often a given that's white and male, and that what our what we've attempted to theorize is difference from white male, from white male as a kind of um, a given, and the sort of optics we've used to understand uh, difference has has often been culture, 
um, yet other things as well, race, gender, sexuality, etc. So these are the, the trajectories of difference that we have used um, in anthropology. And this has been, you know, what we've done, what subsistence patterns, geography, place, all of these things we have used as ways of understanding the trajectory of, of difference from a kind of set, the, a logos, that is white and male. Right. Now, what I think more contemporary interest in the non-human does is that it says the difference in being human is not only along these traditional lines, but it's very much also constituted through relations with other species and beings. And I think, I think this interest now, which sometimes gets marked as multi-species ethnography, that interest comes from, I believe, a broader concern about the kinds of ecological crisis we're seeing and the ways in which ecological crisis is absolutely transforming the communities we've traditionally cared most about in the world. And so, for me at least, there is, a, there is a politics and ethics to my interest in multi-being ethnography. And that is, um, for, if, when we begin to understand the human is not somehow abstracted from other life and begin to take seriously theorizing the ways in which we are not abstracted from other life, then I think it produces moments of care that are different. And that's my goal at the end of the day, is to produce a kind of hesitation about how we are what we are, to, I hope, um, evoke a kind of care for the world and for life that's much more broader than the human. Laura Ogden's reflections raise the question of what feminist studies of the non-human can contribute to an enriched theory of difference and political agency. For Radhika Govindrajan as well, this is central. I'm currently working on a book manuscript that was based on my dissertation fieldwork, and that looks at human-animal relatedness in the Indian Himalayan state of Uttarakhand. I'm interested in understanding what it means to live a life that is knotted with other lives, for better or worse, and how such knots come to be tied. I am using the concept of relatedness, which was offered among other people by the anthropologist Janet Karsten as an alternate to kinship. And I use that to capture the myriad ways in which the potential and outcome of a life always and already unfolds in relation to another life. And in taking these human-animal entanglements in that region as constituting forms of relatedness, I'm acknowledging that one is not made alone, but through the enactment of relationships, both desirable and undesirable, with a host of other beings whose paths crisscross one's own in ways that defy the integrity of bodies and subjects and communities. Um, you know, generations of feminists have questioned the naturalness of relatedness um, and the naturalness of ties between kinship and biology, sex and gender, family and nation. And I'm trying to join this work to that and thinking of how this form of relatedness also calls into question the naturalness of kinship. Like Radhika Govindrajan, Nikhil Anand is also concerned with how Enlightenment-era definitions, or rather fictions, of the human obscure realities about the social world and beyond. Here he is on the subject. 
Well, we've long pretended through humanist framings of the environment or the world that is more than human or non-human um, that we have control over the environment that we make. And of course this has just been a fiction, it's never actually been the case, but that that fiction has become increasingly untenable to maintain. And so if these terms descend to the human and think of the human being as itself a relational mode of existence, then the terms to animal studies or technopolitics um, brings the vital activities of non-human others mm -hmm. into the frame of analysis in a way that is both humbling and also I think more honest about the world that are both of our making and beyond our control. Mm -hmm. So I think um, animal studies make space for that kind of acknowledgement of our mm -hmm. limitations as humans and, and, and the world's, the vital worlds that exist beyond our frames and our modes of control. And so I, I want to think of a world in which, uh, you know, power and politics is never exercised through individual modes of action or acting on a world. It's always emergent through relationships. <laughs> and, and so privileging the relationship as a site of ethnographic inquiry is what I think um, whether the relationship is with a pipe or a or a um, or a cow, right? <laughs> um, the that 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 the relationship is is where the um, where politics emerges from. Mm -hmm. um, politics in Andrew Barry's terms always emerges in relationships with others, right? So, so let's bring the others into the frame of analysis as well, mm -hmm. right? And to pay close attention to those moments of excess, because it's in those moments of excess that. You find both, you know, signposts as they were. You find both the limits of human activities, but also the ever proliferating ways in which our societies, our polities, are trying to come to terms with an unstable set of relationships with the world. As for Nikhil Anand, Faradika Govindrajan as well, politics emerge in relations. In her forthcoming book, this means that attending to humans and animals involves using perspectives from colonial history and post-colonial studies to account for interspecies hierarchies. Here she is. I studied modern South Asia, modern South Asian history at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi and had the good fortune of being mentored by an incredible group of scholars who were really supportive of my interest in uh, the colonial inheritance of post-colonial wildlife conservation in India. And that's one node of this work. And that work brought me to an understanding of the importance of wildness and wilderness in the colonial project and how much uh, these concepts and the practices of power that they made possible were constituted through certain native others. Some animals, and by this I also mean some human animals, have always been celebrated as uh, more human than others. And so that history continues to inform my current interest in animality and difference in contemporary India and the ways in which um, powerful colonial boundaries between the human, the less than human, and the non-human are refined and remade and transgressed in everyday practice. The wildness of animals could be protected only by corralling the wildness of particular humans within colonial projects of conservation. So villagers were always produced as on the cusp of 
violence, right? They were, they always ran the risk of being unable to overcome their animal nature. And this is something that Anand Pandya brings so beautifully in his book, the imbrication of these colonial projects of reform in discourses of animality. Uh, but what's also interesting to me is um, non-human animals have been produced as uh, masters over human lives. And so, for instance, uh, people that I work with often complain that wild boar or monkeys or leopards are actually more powerful citizens of the post-colonial state than they themselves are, right? And they'll complain bitterly that they, these animals have run up their fields, run up the forest, they can do whatever they want and continue to be protected by the state while they themselves are represented as animals by the state. Their lives are worthless. And so there is a really interesting inversion at play there as well that is deeply rooted in these colonial projects of reform and of fencing off people. And uh, that's an important part of the book. All such reflections on the nature of being human bring us to point number two, the new role for ethnography. For instance, we hear with Nikhil Anand the ways in which reflections on the nature of being human as a relational existence gives way to the methodological question of how to account for the non-human beings with whom we are always becoming. For Laura Ogden, this extends all the way into the poetics and politics of writing ethnography. One of the ways in which um, I'm rethinking politics and ethics in terms of ethnography as a practice um, is to try to write in a way that slows down the ways we understand uh, environmental change, um, slows down the way we understand our sense of crisis at this moment. Um, and so this project I think of as being a kind of experiment that produces moments of pause and reconsideration. And that and my inspiration for that specifically comes from the work of the Belgian philosopher Isabel Stengers, who, in conversation with Donna Haraway, has really pushed us to, in Donna Haraway's words, to find ways to be responsible, to respond, but through, I think, hesitation, through, um, through finding ways to kind of reframe um, the dominant paradigms of crisis that we understand. Nikhil Anand speaks of excess and Laura Ogden speaks of hesitation. Both do so in ways that reinvigorate what ethnographic practice might offer. For Radhika Govindrajan, it is about smallness and specificity. Here she is. We speak so generally that we often lose sight of smallness and particularity. That goat, this monkey who has a ear bitten off, the cow who likes to gore people who walk by her. And I think it's hard to grasp, no matter how imperfectly, the intelligence of animals, their capacities for language, the richness of their emotional experience, when one speaks of them only in the abstract animal or is always part of a collective. And so Hugh Raffles has this big piece in stones. And um, I often think about his words in stones as a good way to think about animals as well. And he says, you have to think about a particular animal as animal. Well, so he does this for stones, but let me paraphrase him. A particular animal as animal, the animal, and an animal, a process that 
forces us, as he puts it, to reimagine scalar relationships. And so in the book, I'm constantly trying to move between these different scales and uh, trying to track the doings of particular animals. And ethnography is a huge part of that because you immerse yourself in the lives of animals much as you immerse yourself in the lives of people. You know, you spend long periods of time with them, you observe their preferences, habits, you talk to them through messages, exchange, and gestures, as Donna Haraway puts it. And this is something that I think about quite a bit. How do you how do you talk to animals? Right? How do you communicate with animals? And how does that shape um, these relationships? So ethnography has been really important in helping me think about smallness and singularity. And some people argue that to do this ethnographically means um, to risk anthropomorphization. But I think that risk is worth taking. Um, and it's a risk that allows us to recognize that there are other relationships that are possible. And Brian Masumi actually says, um, perhaps in embracing anthropomorphism, right, we might be able to move beyond our anthropomorphi- uh, anthropomorphism as regards ourselves. Right? That we might actually recognize that we are not the only ones who are sole proprietors of language, thought, and creativity. And so I think that a productive and open ethnographic approach allows us to begin with the awareness that not all chasms are bridgeable, but it can also challenge our hubris and allow for uh, good relationships and good lives. If anthropology might offer an antidote to human hubris, for Philippe Descola, this is also about the way in which ethnography offers the possibility of discovering one's conceptual toolbox to be incomplete. Doing fieldwork in Amazonia as a result um, made manifest to me, at least, that most of the concepts that I brought with me were inadequate to describe what I was observing, society, nature, precisely. And this, uh, as all anthropologists, the kind of conceptual uh, work I'm doing is basically not so much the result of a generalization out of fieldwork, but of the of the disquieting uh, moments mm-hmm. uh, I felt in fieldwork when I measured how inadequate were the concepts I had brought with me to try to understand the local situation. The inadequacy or the misfit of concepts brought to the field is of key interest to many anthropologists. It's an interest that bleeds into the question of how categories describe and organize difference into hierarchies and other politically meaningful forms. For Paige West, to work in this way is to recognize that non-Western categories pertaining to humans and animals do not always or easily map onto such distinctions. Here she is on her long-term commitment to decolonizing anthropology. I, like many, have been pleased to see a refocusing on animals within the discipline of anthropology over the past five to ten years. And I also, of course, as someone who has worked with Indigenous people for many years, been excited to see a return to an interest in what is called ontology and epistemology. But one of the things that I'm increasingly concerned with is the fact that the same old European theories of being and subjectivity and self and other that have been used traditionally to try and understand these things are being imported into this new turn, whether we call it the animal turn or the ontological turn. 
And one of the things that I've tried to do in my past writing and also my more recent writing in my newest book is think about what it would look like if we used indigenous theory to actually try and understand the relationship between people and their surroundings and the relationship between people and animals. What would it really look like to analyze something, be it archival material or ethnographic material our political documents, if we analyze those things through indigenous theories about the relationship between people and animals, theories that think of animals as kin, theories that think of animals in very different ways than the European-derived epistemologies that we often turn to in cultural anthropology. You know, there are indigenous anthropologists from many of the places that these folks are writing about. And so why not turn to those scholars in addition to the other scholars that they turn to in order to illuminate new ways of understanding human-animal relations? There is a brilliant young scholar at Carleton University in Canada named Zoe Todd who writes about the relationship between humans and animals and writes about fish in these beautifully poetic ways from an indigenous point of view and really uses theory from indigenous communities to think through human relationships with animals. Kim Paul Bear's another person who does this. Ty Tingen does this. There's just a range of scholars that are working on these kinds of these kinds of questions within an indigenous literature. And it strikes me that anthropology needs to very seriously think about decolonizing this animal turn and this ontological turn, that we can't solve the problems with the same old theory and method. And that's one reason that I think we have to look outside of what's become the anthropological canon to think, okay, how do we think the assemblage of the now in a new way? And, you know, there are lots of anthropologists who are doing this, lots and lots of anthropologists who are doing this. And I just wish it was a little bit more widespread. Another aspect of the ontological turn that I find a bit concerning, which I find more broadly concerning within environmental anthropology and political ecology right now, is that there seems to be an increasing erasure of the work of women anthropologists. I spoke earlier about us needing to pay much more attention to the work of indigenous scholars. But over the past few years, I've noticed, in particular with the ontological turn, that the bibliographies of the papers and books are not focusing in on work done by the wonderful women anthropologists who have been working on animals and working on questions of ontology for many years. And I think this erasure is interesting and problematic and that we might all think a little more carefully about our citational practices and the way in which the editing out of the work of women scholars actually changes how we think about the genealogy of these topics that we care about. In what will be the final clip of this episode, Philippe Descola echoes Paige West's commitment to decolonization and further reflects on what the stakes of doing so might be. Thanks for listening. My colleague and friend Eduardo Viveros de Castro uses the expression decolonizing uh, anthropology of the Western 
thought, etc. This process of decolonizing is very important, but it, we have to decolonize ourselves also. It's not only the thought that we apply to other people, but ourselves when we are thinking about ourselves. And in that respect, this I've been working um, the past two two years on uh, precisely the, what I call collectives. Collectives, it's a term I borrowed from Bruno Latour, but in a different sense than the one he uses, uh, which is the uh, a collective is something which is is collected. Mm -hmm. I find a, uh, uh, the, that collectives are the way that humans and non-humans form meaningful and efficient aggregates, which is composed of humans, but also of animals, of crops, of land, uh, of uh, specific places. And all these elements form a general socio-cosmic assemblage mm. of elements. Uh, and it's still like that now. That is what is important. I think the, the, the work by Marisol de la Cadena on the ecological uh, struggles in the Andes is a very clear example of that. No, when she shows that when uh, a community protests against uh, the pollution of a river or uh, the destruction of a, of a valley, uh, uh, the erosion of the soil, etc., because of the operation of a mining company, etc., it of course uh, protests against uh, uh, the uh, deterioration of the conditions of life, but also because one of the elements of the collective, be it a mountain, be it a source of water, be it a, a, a brook or whatever, is, as an element of the collective, attacked mm. by a foreign force. And all the other elements of the collective are responsible for the welfare of this, uh, of this element. And this is an entirely different way to think about collective also. So I think this is important in, t in political terms, in the sense that uh, we, we have tended, uh, with the Enlightenment, to see a difference between societies as aggregates of humans who define their own conventions and their own attitude towards the world and the rest that is in the environment, nature, whatever you wish to uh, call it. And uh, this uh, uh, contrast has uh, uh, provided us with the tools that in the social sciences we use in order to understand uh, uh, non-Western uh, people. But these tools are very Eurocentric and so I, I think that the first step in a, a redefinition of the political action that we need uh, uh, to implement is the redefinition of the what we are talking about in political terms as are uh, we, who are the agents, and these agents are in particular non-humans. So this poses the whole problem which is very common for a great many people, the world of us still. Uh, how are they represented? What uh, voice do they have? Um, what form of action or agency can they exert, etc., uh, etc.? Et All these are questions that are absolutely central for us. We cannot go on living as if uh, non-humans, and when I mean non-humans, not only animals, but it's also the the climate, it's the quality of the water, it's uh, everything, you know, the glaciers, etc. Mm -hmm. We cannot go on as if uh, they were just uh, 
part of our surroundings. They're with us, and they're with us, and they and we act with them. They act upon us, and so this interaction needs to receive some form of political expression. And so this implies uh, that anthropologists, in that sense, are in the forefront of the uh, political struggle because they are knowledgeable about this kind of experience. You know? And uh, they have a very, I think, heavy responsibility in that respect. Thank you for listening to this episode of Anthropod. These conversations initially sprung from the annual conference hosted by New York University's Animal Studies Initiative. This episode was produced by me, Laura Murray, and executive produced by Sean Furmage. Anthropod is the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can find more of our episodes at callanth.org. If you have an idea and would like to produce your own episode through the guest podcasting program, do send a message to anthropod at callanth.org. Thanks for listening.